right, well, if you are listening to this, I want you to know that we had audio problems on Sunday and were not able to record the podcast. So right now, I am actually in our Suburban where it's nice and quiet. The kids are in bed. Melissa is doing her Bible study in the room. And I am actually going to teach week number 13 of Exodus, His Move, My Groove, right here in this Suburban, as if I were standing in front of you guys uh, on a Sunday morning. The reason that I'm doing that is because, one, uh, this week is the promised land. You know, you can't you can't hear all of these weeks of the Exodus, all this teaching, and then you get to the promised land. It's like, oh man, I, was, I wasn't there on Sunday. I didn't get to hear that one. Okay, well, there were quite a few people out on Sunday, and so um, for those of you who weren't there, I wanted you to be able to hear these things, to be encouraged in your spirit. So, if you've been tracking with us over the past several weeks, you know that we've talked about just about everything under the sun as it pertains to the major themes of the book of Exodus. We've talked about identity, we've talked about destiny, uh, sojourning, we've talked about the jail, the jimmy, uh, the journey, the wandering, the worshiping. Uh, if you were here when Melissa taught a few weeks ago, she taught on the waiting. It was awesome. If you haven't heard that one, you need to go back and listen to it. Two weeks ago, we taught on the family. We talked about how Israel moving through the desert were, were many members moving as one unit. And we talked about how that was a picture of the body of Christ. Uh, last week, we talked about the followers, that if we are a body, if we are a family, then Christ is the head. He is the leader, which means we are his followers. And we ask the question, uh, if we are his followers, how are we following? In fact, we kind of shortened that question to, are we following? Are we following at all? And so, uh, if you've noticed in all these weeks, what's amazing is that everything that we see do, uh, God doing in Israel through the physical exodus, all those things prophetically point to the things that God wants to do in us as he moves in our lives. And the point of this series is, how did Israel respond to God's active involvement? Because it can teach us how to respond when God is active in our lives. You know, what is my groove in the midst of his move? And this week I want to talk about the promised land. What is the promised land? So we know that there's literally a piece of land that's tied up in all this. This is a truth that goes all the way back to Abram in Genesis 12.1, before his name was changed to Abraham. Genesis 12.1, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, okay, from your land, and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Again, talking about a physical place. So God led Abram to the land of the Canaanites and said, To your descendants I will give this land, a physical place. God made a promise that Abram's family, his descendants, will possess this land, the land of Canaan. It's a piece of real estate that's been the cause of many wars. Uh, it's a land that's still being fought over. It's the land of Israel, okay, with Jerusalem smack dab in the middle of it. So we can't minimize the physical land here, okay, the promised land. But I believe that the greater portion of God's move had to do with a spiritual life, a promised life. Look at Genesis 12, 1 again really quick. He says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country 
and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Okay, I want to look at three things really quick. First of all, relatives is a picture of protection. Think about it. Uh, if nothing else, there's strength in numbers. Okay, I'm, I'm taking you away from your relatives. I'm taking you away from the powerful bonds of loyalty that come with family. You guys know how it is. It's like the Hatfield and McCoys. You know, you mess with me, uh, you mess with my family. You mess with my family, you mess with me. There's a there's a bond of loyalty that comes. This protection that comes. Again, if nothing else, there's there's a strength in numbers. So I'm bringing you away from your relatives, and then he says, I'm bringing you from your father's house. Father's house is a picture of provision. You know, back then, especially when you lived at your father's house, you have you have shelter, you have food, uh, usually you had work. You know, there's a comfort level, there's a comfortable life that comes with living with dad. So God's saying, I'm, I'm bringing you away from your relatives. I'm bringing you away from that protection. I'm bringing you away from your father's house, away from his provision. And look what he says, to the land which I will show you. Okay, this is a picture of dependency. There was a shift of protection and provision coming to the life of Abram. God was moving Abram away from a life of safety and a life of security that was found in the bonds of family and father. And, and he was bringing him to a life of safety and security that would only be found in God the Father. Okay, it's really important to believe that. You know, that word bond, I said found in the bonds of father and family. That word bond can definitely be used to, to mean like the bringing of together, like in a common cause. You know, I'm bonded with my brother. I'm bonded with my dad or whatever. It can also uh, mean a restraint that confines. Okay, so God was bringing Abram away from any confinement, uh, any restraints in his life that may be caused by father and family. You know, maybe maybe Abram had gotten to where he's depending so much on relatives and so much on father's house, protection, provision, that God's saying, you know what, I'm going to do a new thing to where you are only depending upon me. Now, fast forward to a time in history where Abraham's descendants, the sons of Israel, find themselves in a new kind of bond, okay, a new kind of uh, confinement, an actual restraining of freedom. Okay, they were in bondage. Would you say that they were in bondage to the Egyptians? But you know, something that's odd is that though they were oppressed and though they were miserable, they had been there for so long. It's all they had known for so long that they actually found safety and security in their affliction. You know, it's like a wife that is abused by her husband. But she's powerless to leave because it's it's all she knows, okay? That's what it was like for them. Okay, so God, who had not forgotten his everlasting promise to Abraham, remember it was an everlasting promise that he made, uh, he begins to move. If you look at Exodus 3.8, go ahead and turn to Exodus 3.8, look what happens. God starts moving in the lives of the sons of Israel. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, okay? In Egypt, a physical land, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmaster, taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. Okay, the, so you have they, the people are in Egypt, a physical land, 
And look what he says. From the power of the Egyptians. And speaking of a spiritual condition, a spiritual life. We know the oppression that they were under. Okay, so God's bringing them away from the physical land and from the spiritual life. And he says, and I'm going to bring you to, up from them, to a good and spacious land. Talking about a physical land. To a land flowing with milk and honey. And he goes on to say, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusites. Now listen, he says, I'm bringing you up from Egypt to a land flowing with milk and honey. It would be very easy to lump the milk and honey statement with the physical land, or at the very least, a much better physical life. But there's one word, really, that tells us what God really has in mind for Israel when he starts moving, and it's the word flowing. Look there, it says, to a gracious and a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now think about it. Where does milk come from? It comes from cows. Okay, maybe goats in this situation, maybe goats since they were a shepherding people. Okay, but for a cow or a goat to produce milk, it needs the right nutrients. Okay, it's going to need plenty of grass. It's going to need plenty of grain to eat. Uh, it's going to need water to drink. Okay, for there to be plenty of grass, for there to be plenty of grain for the cows to eat and for the water uh, to drink water, that means that there's got to be enough rain. Okay, well, what about honey? Where does honey come from? Uh, a lot of scholars believe that this honey that we're talking about here in Exodus 3.8 could be actually one of two different kinds of honey, or maybe even talking about both. One is what we're most familiar with, uh, bees that would come, uh, honeys that would come from bees. Bees pollinate plants, they take that pollen also, and they make honey out of it. Okay, so that's one kind of honey that it could be talking about. But another kind of honey that it might make sense that, that they're talking about is nectar that's produced by dates. Dates were a very common fruit in that area, a very, a very nourishing fruit. In fact, that was called the bread of the Sahara. Okay, so the honey made by bees, maybe nectar uh, made by dates. Whichever one God may have been talking about here, either way, it takes rain for plants to thrive enough for the bees to use their pollen. Okay, it would also take enough rain for dates to thrive enough to produce the honey-like nectar. Okay, so if you know anything about that area of the world, you know that rainfall is not very consistent. Most of the time there's enough rain for milk and honey to exist and for the people of Israel to get to have some, uh, maybe sometimes more of it than at other times, depending on the rain. But listen, that's not what God was leading them to. God didn't say, I'm leading you to a land where you will get to sample some milk and honey from time to time, depending upon how the rain falls that year. You know, it's not what God was saying at all. You want to know what that word flowing means in the language it was written in? It's the word zub, and it means overflowing. That word literally means to gush. Okay, so think about that. For the milk and honey in that area to gush in that area of the world, it would mean that God would be the one creating the atmosphere and the ability for everything to thrive. So what God was saying is, I am leading you to a place where all natural laws are going to be broken in order to supernaturally 
provide for you. And it didn't matter whether God was going to send an abundance of rain and cause all the flowers to grow just because of the amount of uh, rain that God would send, or whether God was just going to cause everything to grow in spite of a season of drought, whatever. Either way, God was going to make it happen. The greater point is that God wants his people to thrive, not just survive. And then he goes on to say, and by the way, God says, the land is inhabited by multiple The land is inhabited by multiple ungodly nations who are really good at killing people. But don't worry, because the same supernatural power that provides for you will also protect you. See, God was moving his people toward a promised land and a promised life. Well, guess what? God is still moving people toward a promised life. Okay, now I want you to notice what God said to Moses back in Exodus 3, verse 7, okay? We've looked at it, look at it again real quick. He says, I've seen, he's basically saying, I've seen how my children are being treated. I've seen how they're having to live. So, I have come. I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians. Okay, I want us to fast forward one more time to what we've been calling uh, the spiritual exodus. Okay, the moving of a large group of people out of the oppression of, of this world. Okay, I'm talking about the rescue that Jesus provided from the bondage of sin and death. Look what Jesus said in John 10.10. 10. And I know I teach out of this scripture all the time. Um, we're going to look at it again. It says that the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Okay, pause right there. Uh, that was my old life. Okay, I don't know about you, but that was my old life. Okay, the thief coming to steal, kill, and destroy. It's a picture of former bonds, okay, former restraints, former confinements, former uh, lacks of freedom, okay, and we're talking about a life that no one would choose for themselves, you know, and we didn't, (laughs) like we've said before, we can thank Adam and Eve for that lousy gift, but you know what, that's all I knew, a state of being stolen from, you know, I had gotten used to uh, a life of being lied to, you know, I had grown uh, comfortable with the chaos. I had begun to um, depend on depression, you know, as the way I, as the way I lived. It's the way I survived. That's how I dealt with things. You know, but Jesus said, just like God said to Israel, Jesus said, look what he says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come. Just like God said to Israel, I have come and I have brought with me not just life, not just surviving, not just an occasional taste of milk and honey, depending upon the rain. That's not what he said at all. He says, I have come to give life, to bring life, and life more abundant. Okay, this is a picture of God's supernatural provision and protection. Listen, God didn't send Jesus to reward us with a glass of milk and a teaspoon of honey from time to time. He didn't come to grant us an occasional victory over things that come against us. No way. I mean, he promised way more than that. Okay, the promised land is a life of promise. And I'm I'm not saying that there's not a final physical place where Christians go. Obviously, there is. Heaven is very real. And those who truly follow Jesus are being led there. But God's plan is to work supernaturally in our lives while we walk in that direction, okay? A promised life 
and you can write this down, a promised life is one gushing with God's grace. I love that. You know, now that we know what that word flowing means, we can say this right here with confidence. A promised life is one gushing with God's grace. I don't know if you remember the time in 2 Corinthians 12 when Paul had had prayed and prayed and prayed. There were some things that were, it was something that was bothering him, something he was frustrated with, or it was some maybe some sort of ailment or something. He called it a thorn in the flesh or something that was agitating him. And he prayed to God three different times. God, please take this away from me. Please take this away. Please take this out of my life. And God's answer was this. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, my power, my supernatural is made perfect when you admit that the natural is not enough, Paul. Okay? And so Paul responds to God's answer with this. Okay. Then I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Christ's power. What is Christ's power? Well, Christ's power is love. Christ's power is light. It's peace. It's hope. It's all those things that we know that are benefits of knowing, being in Christ. Joy, truth, uh, goodness, mercy. These are all things that Jesus was literally carrying in his arms when he made the journey to the cross. And that journey to the cross, of course, was to fulfill the promises of God in our lives. Now, if you weren't here on Sunday, I don't know if you'll ever get to see this picture, but I showed on the PowerPoint uh, a picture that my middle son, Cannon, drew. It was basically a picture of him standing by this tree with his arms just as high as he could get them in the air. Okay, (laughs) something funny about the picture is that he had one glove on uh, one of his hands. And so I don't know if that was his Michael Jackson thing or what, you know, but it's a funny picture. He had one glove on. Anyway, he was standing there by this tree and the sun was just beaming down on him and he had a big smile on his face. And and he had just drawn that uh, like the day, uh, I guess on Saturday. And uh, Melissa showed it to me and I was like, wow, I've got to use that tomorrow for my sermon. And she said, why? And it's like, that's it. That right there is the promised land. Okay, you look at the picture and of course there's a tree there, which kind of just represents geography, geography, because, uh, you know, the promised land, again, it was a physical place. But more than that, you know, it's, it's God's grace gushing onto our lives. You can see that picture of the sun just beaming down on this boy whose arms are raised high with a giant smile on his face, you know? And that, to me, that's the promised land. That is the promised life. Now, now my question that I asked on Sunday, and I'm going to ask you who's, who are listening to this right now, what keeps us from Christ's power resting on us like that? What keeps that grace from gushing upon our lives? What keeps that sun from shining down, just beaming down and bringing that great joy upon our lives? What keeps us from living a life gushing with grace? What is it? I mean, what keeps us from living a life gushing with grace? A life of thriving instead of just surviving. This week I thought about how pursuing the promised life is a lot like learning how to swim. You think about learning how to swim. I mean, everybody wants to learn how to swim. And if you think about it, everyone has the ability to swim unless they have some sort of physical thing 
that keeps them from being able to swim. Anybody can learn how to swim. Anybody, anybody can. I thought about how I I actually taught myself to swim when I was about nine or 10 years old. There was this, uh, we were at Lake Fork, we were at this family thing, and there was this pier that kind of went out on two sides and made like a half of a square. And so you could kind of go out on one side of the pier, walk around, and then come back on the other side of the pier. And in the middle of that deep area, there was this thing, it was like a giant sit and spin <laughs> that was in the water. And so you'd swim out to it, it was really deep water, you'd swim out to it, and you can crank on this thing just like a sit and spin, and it would spin you around. You'd spin it so fast that it'd eventually just throw you off in the water. And uh, I remember all the adults, all the other kids were playing on it, but I couldn't swim. And so I was sitting on the pier just watching and just wishing I could get out there, wishing at that moment I could swim. That would have been the promised land for me if I could just swim out to that thing and have fun like everybody else. Okay, well, lunchtime came and everybody went up to the pavilion and they were eating, but I just sat there on the pier. And I was looking at that thing and thinking, oh, man, I just want to go play on that deal. And all of a sudden, almost like without thinking, I can remember it like it was yesterday. I just jumped into the water and I just started beating the water with my hands. And before I knew it, one of my hands touched that thing, that big giant sit and spin. And I realized I had just swam about 20 feet from the pier to the big giant sit and spin. And I was so excited that I didn't even play on the sit and spin. I jumped back in the water and swam back to the pier. So for about 30 minutes, I swam back and forth. And I taught myself how to swim that day. It wasn't pretty, but I was swimming. And I also thought about how uh, when when uh, Melissa and I first started dating, uh, Marvin was about 10 years old. And one day I took him to a friend of mine's house with me and we were playing in the friend's pool and we were playing chicken and stuff on rafts. And well, Marvin couldn't swim. And so he kind of sat on the side, much like I did when I was about 10 and wanted to get to the sit and spin. And so um, he would wade over in the water and he would play in the shallow end, but he really wanted to be out there doing stuff with us. And so we kind of made fun of him and stuff. You know, haha, you can't swim. Well, we talked about it and he's made a big deal about it. He wanted to learn to swim. And so I said, well, I'll teach you how to swim. <laughs> and so here you go. And I basically just tossed him into the pool. And, you know, he didn't like me for that very much. But there's been plenty of things that I've done to Marvin, which he hasn't liked me for over the years. But, you know, and then I thought about, you know, so I taught myself how to swim. Uh, I just jumped in there. Uh, I taught my brother-in-law how to swim. I just tossed him in the water and said, go for it. But I thought about how I've taught all of my kids how to swim. And I have distinct memories of all of them learning how to swim. And all of them really wanted to learn. They wanted to know. And we, we, I taught them all how to swim. And I just thought about the process of learning how to swim. You know, the different, the different phases of learning how to swim. You know, it's, it's different when you teach your children how to swim. Because you don't just toss them in like you might do your brother-in-law. You know, it's there's different phases in it. And you're a little more gentle and you're a little more uh, patient. And and um, and so I thought about how, you know, with all of my kids, I would, you know, you would, first time they would get into the pool, you would hold them close and you would, you would ease them down into the water. And it's shocking to their system. You know, it's usually cold. And so the babies are shaking their hands and they're wigging out a little bit. But you say, it's okay, it's okay. And you walk around the pool, try to get them acclimated to the water. But it's shock to their system, you know. And so maybe you do that for a few times. And then maybe another time you, you grab them up on the arms and you, you bring them out from your chest. And they freak out and they start waving their hands and crying. Because why? It's a shock to their system. It's new. But it's important. 
And so you bring them out and maybe you kind of wade them around in the water and push them around and, and, you know, get them used to what it feels like with their body kind of flowing through the water. And of course they wig out cause it's all scary. And, and then the next thing, of course I, I took Emma Kate this past summer to swim lessons. And when we got past that phase of held them out, um, um, you know, the teacher said, why don't you just splash water in their face next? And I just looked at that lady like she was crazy. It's like, what? Splash water in their face? Because for me and my boys, the next thing to do was take them and just dunk them underwater and get them used to feeling like what it's like to hold your breath. And of course, that's a scary phase. You know, you throw them under the water and they wig out, they come out and they're like screaming at you, yelling at you, clawing at you, depending upon your child's personality. And, you know, it's just scary. And then after that, you know, you're holding them and, and saying, paddle your hands. And just think of all the phases. And it's like for kids, you get them to the point where they can you, to where they can wade by themselves, you know, in the shallow end. And they can play fairly confidently. And they, and they can wade back and forth, wade back and forth. And eventually, with enough practice, they, they learn how to swim. Before they know it, they're, they're just they're swimming. And they're so excited. And granted... All of my boys, when we got to that last stage, I had to push them a little harder, and it was shock to their system because I would basically basically take them out maybe 25 feet from the side of a wall, and I would let go and say, swim back, and you know they're fighting me the whole way. But you know, every one of my boys, when they realized that they were swimming, it was like they had just entered the promised land. They were so excited, and all of a sudden, they're swimming around the pool, and from that day on... They can swim and they're able to enjoy not just the shallow end where they can wade back and forth, but they're enjoying the whole benefits of the pool. They're diving underwater and they're diving off the diving board and then jumping off the sides and they're doing flips and they're able to play chicken on the rafts. They're able to do all these things. Why? Because they were able to swim. They got past the shock of all those different stages. They grew up, they matured, and they, they entered into that promised land called swimming. But you know what? I thought about what is it? that keeps somebody from really learning to swim. Not just kids, even adults. There's adults that don't know how to swim. And what is it that kept them from entering into that promised land, from learning how to swim? It was fear. Most adults that can't swim is because they're afraid. Maybe there's something that happened when they were kids that, that caused them to be afraid of the water. Or maybe their dad threw them into the... <laughs> into the pool like I did Marvin and it freaked him out. By the way, Marvin's okay. He's not bitter and he can swim and we have a great relationship. But my point is, is that fear is the only thing that keeps anyone from learning how to swim. Again, other than having some sort of disability that keeps them from being able to swim. And listen, I'll say it like this. Fear is also the thing that will either keep you out or kick you out of the promised land. You have to remember that that when when it was time for them go to go to the promised land, just a short time after they left Egypt, they sent spies into the land. And remember, the reports came back, and and most of the people that went and spied out the land said, "We can't do this. There's giants in the land. Their walls are fortified. Uh, we'll never get in there. There's a big battle to fight, and we will not be able to win." And it was only Joshua and Caleb that said, that's crazy, we can, we can win. God was on our side. Joshua and Caleb weren't afraid. They knew that they could do it. They, they had the faith to go forth and to believe that that could happen. Listen, 
it always pains me to see an adult that can't swim. Okay, it's like it's like it's a mature human who is confined. Okay, back to those bonds, but back to that bondage, a mature human who is confined by fear. Okay, and and so you have you have someone that can't swim, and what do they do? They're they they wade in the shallow end. You know, their whole life they're. 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, and when they're, when they're go to the lake, or they go to a pool, or whatever, they get in the pool, and that's great, but they stay in the shallow end, and they walk in the shallow end, and they're not really enjoying the full benefits of the pool, go, you know, the, the depths of the water, they stay in the shallow end, and is it not the same thing in our faith? People, because of fear, not enjoying the full benefits, that gushing grace that comes from from knowing Christ's power. So that the Christ's power may rest on me, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians. And Christ's power isn't resting on them. That gushing grace isn't in their lives because of fear. And they spend their time waiting in the shallow end instead of swimming in the deep end. Listen, there is a life that God intends for us to live. Just like he said to Israel, I have come to deliver you. Just like Jesus said, I have come that they may have life. And not just life, life more abundant. Life gushing with grace. But fear will rob us of that gushing grace. Fear will keep us out of the promised land. And it will kick us out. You know, there's a lot of us who have had great times and, and we're, we've, we're experiencing that gushing grace and we're all, but then something will happen in life, another shocking moment, you know, where God takes you away from his chest and puts you out a little bit. And all of a sudden that shock brings such fear in us that all of a sudden it kicks us out of that promised life. All of a sudden I'm, I'm waiting in, in the shallow end again. I'm letting fear uh, surround me and envelop me and, and swallow me whole again. And those benefits, that love, that light, that peace, that hope, that joy, that truth, all those things, they start, they start going away from our life and we start focusing on the fear rather than operating in faith. And it robs our lives. So the challenge that I gave on Sunday uh, was twofold. It was, it was uh, a physical challenge and it was a spiritual challenge. In the natural, the physical, I'm just, I want to encourage anybody at our church that can't swim to learn how to swim. You know, obviously, again, there are physical things that would keep someone from learning how to swim. Like if they, uh, if they are missing an arm or something, it could be difficult. But if you have been afraid of water, you've been afraid to learn how to swim, you've been afraid of the deep end, whatever, I want to encourage you to get over that. I want to encourage you to pray through that and ask God for the strength, for the gushing grace to allow you to learn how to swim. And then on the spiritual end, I want you to apply that to the promised life. To take inventory. Is there are there things in your life that you're just you're bound, you're in the bonds, you're confined by fear. And it's not allowing you to experience Christ's fullness, that life abundant that He's He's uh, so desires for you to have. And if so, I want you to pray through those things. You know, Scripture says that perfect love, which comes with the abundant life, 
perfect love casts out fear. Okay, so if you have a fear, if you have multiple fears in your life that are keeping God's grace from gushing, which is what he wants, I want to encourage you to press in to the Lord. Okay, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians, he said, I'm going to boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power, so that Christ's power may rest on me. Christ's power resting on you is you uh, entering into the promised land, entering into the promised life.